So as we prepare now for look into God's word, go ahead and turn this morning to Galatians. This is the only passage where Paul, I think, directly addresses Jesus' birth. And his point really is to make it clear that Jesus came to be fully human, fully man. And he came as the Son sent to redeem us. Glorious truth here in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, that will tie in nicely with our communion service this morning as well. And so just a little bit of background here before we read that together and pray, because we're not doing a study in Galatians right now, so we need that for context. And Paul in chapter 3 has reminded us, and he writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ took the curse of the law. He fully fulfilled and was obedient to his father with that law, and yet still took the curse of it on himself as he literally hung from the product of the tree that awful cross. Furthermore, further understanding, remember the law was given to further reveal man's sinfulness. It was never meant to save him. God's people in the Old Testament misunderstood that. If we can just keep the law well enough, God will be pleased with us. The whole point was you can't keep the law well enough to please God. It's not possible. And whatever person that we read of, or reading of David, certainly David had his difficulties, didn't he? He was not the Savior. He loved and respected God's law. We see that in the Psalms, but he couldn't keep it perfectly. None of us can. All those Old Testament saints needed a Redeemer. And folks, we need a Redeemer today because we're under the captivity. We were under the captivity of sin before Jesus came. And Jesus did come, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. And he came to fulfill the demands of that law, that awful law of beauty and its harshness, certainly the word of God, but the one that just constantly proclaimed, you are condemned, you are a sinner. And Jesus fully obeyed, fulfilled the demands of God's law, and so through faith in him now, we can have his righteousness, and that law no longer condemns us, folks, because we have the righteousness of Christ. All of these things are what Paul has been leading up toward as he writes to an audience that is starting to put their faith in other things besides Christ. And he says, no, don't do that. You've been given the gospel. Don't put yourself back under the law as if you can somehow do enough good things along with your faith in Christ. Don't do that. That's not the purpose of the law. The law can't save. And now he's going to continue to describe the purpose of the law in a curious and interesting way that we don't normally think. Chapter 4, verse 1 here, Paul describes the law as a type of jail warden and even a guardian. And that guardian, the Greek word pedagogue, was the law until Jesus came God's people were under that guardian or pedagogue. What was it? What's a pedagogue anyway? Sounds like a musical term. Well, in the Greek, I'm sorry. It, well, in the Greek, 
It was not anything to do with music, but it was typically household slaves, although they could be free persons as well, bond servants, who were in charge of children until their later teenage years. A guardian in the ancient world was not precisely a teacher, but more of a child attendant or babysitter, keeping watch over the children during the years of immaturity. But Jesus coming, becoming man, the incarnation and his sacrifice, did away with that time. It was fulfilled. Let's read verses 1 through 7 in Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to look at this passage for a few minutes this morning and realize that because of what Jesus did, all we have to do is put our full dependence and faith in that, and we are no longer slaves to sin, slaves to the law that condemns us, but we are your sons and daughters. We have a wonderful inheritance awaiting for us. So thankful to be adopted in that way. Lord, help us to... As we contemplate all of the wonder of Christmas and the wonderful things that we'll receive, that this is the most wonderful, most important gift, that we are your children through faith in Christ. And as Paul emphasizes this, let us marvel. Let us joy. Let us find our joy, excitement, and, um, and enthusiasm through this truth. Jesus came, was born died and was risen again so that we might have new life and be freed from sin. Let us proclaim that to a world that needs to hear, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Son sent to redeem us. And first of all, in these first three verses of chapter 4, we were held in captivity because of the bondage of sin. We were under bondage. We were under that law. And for God's people in the Old Testament, really is a focus of verses 1 and 2, the Jews had been under that guardianship of the law. God's people have been given the law to remind them of their, of their sin. And Paul here describes that, as we just said, as a guardian or a guardianship. Again, this was a pedagogue or someone that had charge of the children who would one day legally receive the inheritance that they deserved. Many times wealthy families where there would be much to one day receive. Even the, that story of the prodigal son where he went and got his inheritance early. Um, not the normal uh, process in which to do that. But there is a great inheritance for these people, but they couldn't access it 
until they came of age. And Paul says in that regard then, they were no different than a bond slave. They had no rights. They had no ability to enjoy the benefits of being an heir. And God describes his people in the Old Testament. The Jews had been given special blessings as God's chosen nation. And they were the heirs, God's people at that time, but they couldn't access all the blessings. They were under the rule of the law. Just as an heir is subject to guardians and managers while he is a while he is a child, so God's people at that time were under the law. And in God's timing, he was the one that decided the time period of that guardianship. That was totally in God's control. So verse 1, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant. Though he be Lord of all, he would one day access all of the inheritance. But as a child, with that guardianship over him, he was no different than a slave. So one would come till he would come of age to receive that inheritance. And that's another picture that Paul gives us to understand that we were in captivity. God's people were in captivity under the law until Jesus came. So the people of God under the old covenant had not received any of the redemptive blessings of being his children. They'd received the land. They'd received um, many blessings in that regard, the ability to live in that land. But the spiritual redemptive blessing, blessings were still to come. And also they had been condemned of their sin through the law. The whole Old Testament is waiting, folks, for the birth of the Savior. So that they can enjoy the promises. Now here's the neat thing. The Gentiles were also then included in that once Christ came. And it does seem in verse 3 as if uh, Paul now also, because he's writing to a church that's mostly Gentile. When he gets to verse 3, he seems to be pointing. He was talking about God's people, the Jews in the Old Testament. Now he's talking about the Gentiles as well. The Gentile Christians. Even so we. When we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The Jews were under the bondage of the law, the guardianship. The rest of us were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now that phrase there can be tricky to understand. And so I want to make sure that we have a, a basic, under, an elementary understanding of that phrase. The Elements of the world could also be described as the elementary principles. Now, we've seen this word in our study in Colossians, too, by the way. We've talked about this already. Uh, there are some that see this as uh, still referring to the Jews and that they were under the elementary principles of the law until Jesus came. And it can refer to that at times. But really, in the Greek at this time, this phrase had a different meaning, a meaning for the Gentiles, and it had the idea of the principal elements of creation, like wind, fire, and water. And now you may hear that and say, well, Pastor Brock, I'm sorry, that doesn't make any more sense than the other verse, <laughs> the other interpretation. How can we be enslaved under bondage to fire, wind, and water, the elements of creation? 
Folks, don't forget that this was a world steeped in idolatry where they worshipped creation rather than looking at creation and seeing a creator. Not too unlike today. Where people look at the world and see all kinds of strange things, evolution and evolving and matter coming from nothing back then. In Bible times, it was, well, let's worship these things. Let's worship the sun. Let's worship the water, the rivers. Let's worship the trees. And so uh, I believe Paul is pointing out here that the Gentiles were also in bondage to sin, worshiping God's creation as idols. They were pagans. And I think this also points to the fact there is demonic activity associated with idol worship. And so there's demonic activity associated with the elements of the world in this case, the domain of Satan in this life. And so Paul is saying that the Gentiles were in bondage to their sin, worshiping creation rather than giving glory to God, as we talked about this morning at Sunday School. God deserved the glory, and people gave the glory to made-up idols, and nature itself. Today, we talk about Mother Nature, whatever that means to people. But they worship even that with their own concepts rather than turning to God. And so to be involved in idolatry as well was to be enslaved in sin. So the Jews were enslaved by the commandments of the law that pronounced their judgment. And the Gentiles were slaves to false worship of nature, those elements of the world. We were all enslaved by sin, folks. We were held captive by it. We had no hope. And that's the picture that Paul is giving as then now he describes our hope. We were held in captivity because we were in bondage to our sin. It was all we could do. Even our righteous works were as rags. Everything that we did as those as sinners that rejected God was against his law, was sin. But when Jesus came, we are now redeemed from captivity to be God's children and to be heirs as God's children. And God's plan, we see here in verses 4 through 5, throughout all time, was to send his son to provide redemption. In verse 4 again. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. In other words, he was put under the same expectations and restrictions of the law that every other Jewish person, every, every one of God's people had been put on since the beginning, since the law came to God's people. Christ had those same expectations set on him, but he fulfilled the law perfectly, right? And because he did that, Verse 5, he's able to redeem us, to redeem them that were held captive under the law, and also the Gentiles as well, that we all might receive the adoption of sons. That, back to verse 4, that phrase, the fullness of time, is wonderful because it shows us that God, throughout eternity past, through all eternity, this was his plan. It wasn't... Well, my first plan was to make a beautiful garden where my people could live. And, you know, then I had these angels, Satan, and these fallen angels that rebelled against me, but I can handle that. And then this, this angel, Satan, this fallen angel, then tempts um, my creation, mankind, and they fall prey. Well, 
Wasn't expecting that, but that's okay. I've got a plan. I'm going to send my son. No, folks, this was always God's plan and his sovereign plan for all of eternity. He knew before he created us that he would have to send his son. And in the fullness of time, just as God um, brought everything together and just as he directed, that was the time in history that Jesus came, exactly appointed by the Father. A seminary teacher named Dr. Leighton Talbert, who wrote a book, Not By Chance, Learning to Trust the Sovereign God. And he has a wonderful uh, passage um, here written about the fullness of time and God's sovereignty in this that is very helpful. I just want to read to you part of this to just remind us of God's sovereign plan in the coming of Messiah. History is the illustrated encyclopedia of God's providence. To the believer, the amazing coincidences of history are but manifestations of God's intervention for his omniscient, benevolent purposes. Providence in politics at this time. The groundwork for the dominance of a single, uniting political influence had been laid with each successive world empire over the centuries. Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman. By and large, each empire extended the borders of the previous one and expanded the numbers of provinces and peoples brought under its influence. The unprecedented size of the Roman Empire was therefore the product of centuries, and God clearly had an eye to this end throughout the millennium preceding the birth of Christ. Rome at peace, Pax Romana, the period during which Christ was born, provided ideal circumstances for the spread of the message of God's coming into the world. Also, his providence and commerce, in order to transport troops and transmit information more efficiently, the Roman Empire devised an unprecedented system of communication and transportation. Now, that's the human side. The divine side is that God, through the free choices of men ignorant of him and his purposes— directed the building of this system in order to facilitate the movement of his armies, God's armies and ambassadors, for the communication of his message. The Romans constructed a brilliantly engineered network of roads, some of which survive to this day, which made accessible the farthest reaches of the known and conquered world. The Romans also put into place an efficient postal system, which eventually expedited the spread of God's correspondence to man through the revelation of the New Testament. Providence and language. A single universal language throughout the empire was the enduring legacy of Alexander the Great's conquest three centuries before the birth of Christ. The introduction and establishment of Greek as the common tongue throughout the known world likewise enormously facilitated the widespread and rapid communication of the gospel. God's Old Testament revelation was given in Hebrew, a language virtually limited to one important but very small nation. But with the introduction and establishment of Greek came another vital preparatory work on the part of God, the translation of God's Hebrew Old Testament revelation into a universally accept accessible language, Greek. This translation, called the Septuagint, produced over a period of about a century, introduced the self-revelation of God to the world at large. It became the Bible of Christ and the apostles, the Bible of the writers of the New Testament, 
and in the Old Testament of the early church. The Septuagint had, in the providence of God, a great and honorable part to play in preparing the world for, for Christ. And one more, providence in philosophy? Judge for yourself. The Greek philosophical world had long debated a variety of ideas and ideals. When the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduced the Messiah to the world as the Word, this concept was not entirely novel. The Septuagint had employed logos, meaning the Word, to depict God's Word as both the agent of creation and the controller of creation. In general, God's Word throughout communicates divine revelation. Folks, in short, God was providentially at work plowing the soil of the philosophical musings of men who did not know him in order to set the stage for the presentation of his son as the very expression and communication, the word of God himself. In the fullness of time, God had everything prepared for Jesus to come. And he came. The beginning of a new era in salvation and history. Jesus was fully human. He was born of a woman. It wasn't a human shell or costume. He was fully human, a true human body. And he also, just like the rest of God's people, experienced the full weight of subjection under the law, but he upheld it, and he perfectly obeyed his father. Why did he do all this? so that he could provide us redemption, so that we also could be sons. I think that was the snow coming off on top there. <laughs> Hope nobody was parked by the wall there. <laughs> Jesus fully fulfilled the requirements of the law. No doubt. But he also not just obeyed God's law, but then took the curse because of his love for us and God's grace. Jesus took the full, awful curse of that law on himself. And that's why we, in just a few minutes, will reflect on communion, the Lord's Supper together, to remember all that Jesus did so that we could be redeemed, folks. To redeem them, verse 5, that were under the law, captive to it, that we might no longer be captive, be sinners, but we might be sons. And one day we will receive the full benefits the adoption of sons. <laughs> Jesus came so that we could do that. He will redeem um, us from the enslavement to the law, and those who believe in his redemptive work are adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. And that very Greek word adopted means being put into position as a child of God. All of that because Jesus came. He was born to die and sacrificed himself. You know, I had the opportunity to be involved in, in a vibrant, uh, exciting youth group as a, as a teenager in Michigan. Our youth pastor, well, he was our pastor as well, had all these crazy creative ideas and had all these different things that we did. And um, sometimes they're almost outlandish in some of the events that he came up with. But one of the games that I always enjoyed the most was something that was really quite simple in its scope. But it just was a lot of fun, and that was the old game of Capture the Flag. You remember that game? And we took it seriously in, in my youth group. We had this nice patch of dense woods in the back behind the church on the church property. 
and it had lots of trees and overgrowth, and it even had a swamp to make it extra messy, you know. And we we took those seriously as we each gathered on each side, and then they um, sounded the horn or whatever to start the, the siren to start the game. And the object was to cross over. You had the middle line divided up the forest on equal sides, and you had to cross over into enemy territory, grab their flag that they had carefully, or they were supposed to carefully hide, and bring it back to your side, and the game was won. Well, there was also this um, this area marked off outside of the woods that was the prison. And nobody wanted, in the midst of trying to do all these things to get the flag, and all these um, strategies and being careful, nobody wanted to get tagged on the other side and then carried off to prison because you just sat there. And my friends and I, as, as we were trying to think of different ways, you know, you split up this way, I'll go this way, I'll go right through the middle of the swamp, they'll never follow me there, you know, and, and we'll find the flag. And then um, one of our friends would find the flag and he would give it to another person as he was being carried off. Nobody, everybody wanted to be in the excitement of the moment of the game. Nobody wanted to be stuck in prison where you couldn't do anything at all and just wait for everybody. It was awful. The anticipation was that you were going to win. So when you were stuck, when you were tagged on the other side and you were brought to that jail area, you were then, you could wait, you could have some of your team, if they were kind enough to do so, and they were brave enough to actually go into the system or into the square, the prison that was being guarded, and tag you and get you out. And everybody was looking and waiting. Like, oh, one of my guys going to come, or one of the girls going to come and, and tag me out. And you kind of, you see one, and, and, and you kind of have a couple of the other guys distract the, the prisoner or, or the, the prison guard there. And they're like, oh, hey, come on. Runs over and you know, tags you real quick, and, and you all run off. Nobody wants to be enslaved. We were waiting for that redemption of that person to come. <laughs> I know that's kind of a silly description there, but it really does remind me of the desire to be freed from a prison. And what Paul describes here is God's people that really in ways they didn't even understand were enslaved. Um, and the whole world was enslaved in sin, just waiting for that redeemer, waiting for the one that not would just tag them and set them free, but would die for them would sacrifice his own life, would be tortured in agony. Much more than just being tagged or being put in a position where you might get tagged yourself to help a friend. Jesus came to die in agony so that we could be redeemed. And then we're, we're freed once for all, folks. We can't be tagged and brought back into prison again. We're free for eternity. And we're called the sons of God. And God's plan was to send his spirit as well to indwell his children, to make us his sons and daughters, and then give us the presence of himself in the form of his spirit to grow us and to help us mature and help us to understand how we were supposed to live for him. God gave us everything we knew to, we needed to be his children. Verse 6, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we immediately receive the spirit as God's children. And that spirit confirms and he assures that we are the sons of God. 
Sometimes we may look at all that Jesus did and, and look at our own unworthiness and say, Lord, can we really be your children? And we literally have the agent of God inside of us to confirm, yes, you are. And you can cry out to God as your father in a way, really, that the people of the Old Testament never could. You can cry out to him in almost terms of affection, affection that children say today, Daddy. <laughs> or call other, other names of affection. And because of what Jesus did and was willing to come to earth, we can call God our father. And reach out to him whenever we have a struggle, whenever we have a problem. And Paul emphasizes this further in this last verse, verse 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. It is a work done in our very hearts, folks, the seed of will and emotion. And we can experience that close relationship because we're not his slaves any longer. This really ties in well with our study in Philemon. Philemon was a slave under the law. And when he trusted Christ, he was no more a slave to, I'm sorry, Onesimus was. And when he trusted Christ through the ministry of Paul, he was no longer a slave under Philemon, but he was a brother. He was a part of God's family. That's all of us, folks, regardless of who we are, regardless of our past, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we become his children, and amazingly, we have legal claim to an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, because we're his children. We're not enslaved in captivity in our sin any longer, because God's eternal redemptive plan in the fullness of time was to send his son born in new humanity, fully human, and die for us so that we in some, so much more significant way could truly be set free, not from some game, but from eternity apart from God and hell. That was something that we should truly long to be free of, and through that, through Jesus, we can be. And that, folks, is what we need to remember this season. That's what we celebrate. The coming of Christ, and it's a celebration as well of the victory that we have in Jesus that will set us free from sin. So remember that. Remember this passage. Remember the victory that we have in Christ. That is what we celebrate. And that's what we also remember in the soberness of the moment of communion, folks. Remember that as we reflect on Jesus' death and the tragic circumstances of that, that is also victory that he provided for us. And let's marvel on that together. Father, <clears throat> as we prepare ourselves now for communion, armed with this reminder that Jesus was willing to become fully human and die, he had to fully experience in human form the awfulness of crucifixion so that we could be set free. Lord, remind us, this is not a children's game, but the consequences are eternal. And as we come before you this morning and we enjoy and fellowship over the Lord's table and have these sobering reminders of what Jesus went through for us at the same time, 
we can rejoice. And we need to proclaim. Lord, give us opportunity tonight to proclaim the glories of the coming of Christ.